series speaker presenter Lyle Southwell presenting the ancient codes of Bible prophecy in his live series called The Prophetic Code. You'll be amazed as he cracks the ancient codes of Bible prophecy in ways you have never heard before. All right, let's, uh, let's bow our heads as we begin with prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you so much that once again we can gather together to spend this time in studying your word. We thank you for the symbols, the codes, the prophecies, and the things that you have written for us. And we pray that as we look at this most important one this evening about lifestyle, that you will bless us in a very special way. We thank you for giving us uh, a guidebook that guides us not just mentally, not just spiritually, but physically as well. We pray that you'll bless us now. Surround us with your holy angels and fill us with your Holy Spirit. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Ancient Egypt was a fascinating society. One of the significant things about ancient Egypt for us today is that they have a very dry climate where there is basically no rain. They survive because the river Nile is there and provides them with plenty of water. The second thing is that the ancient Egyptians seemed to live for just one purpose. They lived for the day that they died and they would spend their entire life preparing for their death and their religion taught that it was important for them to preserve their body at the time of death. They believed that the body was made up of three things, the bar, the car and the ark. And that when you died, the bar and the car would leave the body. You had to preserve the body so that they could later come back and recognize it. And unless this took place, you would be in all kinds of trouble and the bar and the car would be lost forever. Initially, of course, mummification was something that could only, uh, only the wealthy could afford. But in the later kingdoms, everybody did it. And so there are literally thousands and thousands of well-preserved mummies all through ancient Egypt. When they were died, of course, they were provided with all of these uh, little icons or idols right here, whatever you want to call them, little statues um, called Shabti. And these were their servants. These were their servants that would serve them in the later life. Not only were they given all of these um, Shabti, all these servants, they were given a detailed book of how to survive the afterlife. And so you'll find here, um, their soul is being weighed in the balance. And here you find their soul, the, the, the ark and the bark is being carried away by a bird. And so you had this whole book and it would be buried there so that you could follow along with it thereafter. Now, the wonderful thing about the Egyptian mummies is that so many of them have been preserved today that we have been able to do autopsies on them and find out a lot, about, a lot of things about ancient Egypt. In fact, in the University of Manchester, they've done autopsies on over 3,000 Egyptian mummies, found out some fascinating things like their medical practice. Here you find a man who's, who broke his leg and it healed, and I imagine that that one ended up a little bit shorter than the other one. So as they have done these autopsies, they've been able to find out what were the major killers of the ancient Egyptians. And guess what the major killers of the ancient Egyptians were? Well, we need to understand a few things about their lifestyle. They were a wealthy society. They ruled the world. They had hundreds of thousands of slaves. They lived a very refined diet of food and a very sedentary lifestyle. And as a result, their three top killers were heart disease, diabetes, and cancer. What are our three top 
killers here in Australia today. Heart disease, diabetes, and cancer. Nothing changes much, does it? Yeah. The lifestyle back then, the lifestyle today, it's the lifestyle diseases that are killing us. Now let's turn in our Bibles to Exodus chapter 15 because I want to show you something fascinating here in Exodus chapter 15 that God said to the Israelites when they came out of Egyptian captivity, they were Egyptian slaves, and as they were coming out of Egyptian captivity, he had something, this is on page 29, something very specific to say to them. Verse, 20, uh, verse 26, chapter 15 and verse 26, and God said, if you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and will do that which is right in his sight and will give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of these diseases upon you which I have brought upon the Egyptians for I am the Lord that heals you. So he comes to the Israelites and he says, look, if you follow what I say, I won't put the diseases of the Egyptians upon you. Heart disease, diabetes and cancer. We know that to be the case. And we just heard from Professor Schaffenberg how that if you follow what the Bible says here this evening, you can cut down on heart disease by 80%. You can cut down on diabetes by 88%. And What was the other one? Cancer, you can cut down on that one as well. I forget the percentage, but uh, the experts over here, 40%. 40%. Well, that's a significant reduction right there. So let's then dig into it and find out what does the Bible have to actually say about this? Is God concerned about our physical well-being? Does it make sense that he would be concerned about that? You know, a lot of people would come to us and say, you know, God is just worried about you spiritually. That's the only thing he's worried about. No, the Bible has a lot to say about God's concern for us physically. In fact, if you go over to 3 John, if you want to find 3 John, just go to Revelation chapter 1 and 3 John is at the top of the page. So Revelation chapter 1, top of the page is 3 John and verse 2, the Bible says, Beloved, I wish above all things that you may prosper and be in what? In health. God is concerned about our health. Now, the natural conclusion that we could come to is if God is concerned about our health and God wrote the Bible and God created us, he knows how we work, he knows how our body functions, doesn't it make sense that he would give us some instruction? You know, if you buy a car, does that car in the glove box have an instruction book about how to maintain that car? Yeah, and if you follow that instruction book, that car is going to go for hundreds of thousands of kilometres more than if you don't follow it. My boys have a scrap metal business. They collect scrap metal from all over the place and people hear about it and they uh, give them scrap metal and they take it down and turn it into pocket money and they do rather well out of it. And they've done several cars. One of the interesting ones they did recently was a late model car. It was a late model, just small Daewoo, and the engine in it was completely wrecked. Do you know what the people did? They bought the car... They didn't touch the car. They simply drove it until the engine seized. No maintenance at all. You should have seen the inside of that motor. It was just remarkable. So the Bible says, God says, 
that he won't put on us the diseases of the Egyptians. The sad reality is today, we are dying of the diseases of the Egyptians that God said that he has a way of us avoiding. Let's go to, let's go to 1 Corinthians. Let's look at a number of principles over here. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. You'll find that on page 463. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And we will notice here verse 31, where God says this, Whether therefore you eat or you drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Does the way we pursue our lifestyle have an effect on giving glory to God according to the Bible? Yes, it does. The Bible says that we should actually consider this. Now, the Bible says that each one of us is the personal, individual creation of God. He saw us before we were conceived. He said, yes, I want to create this particular person right here. And that he created us in his image. Do you think that the devil likes the fact that we are created in the image of God? Do you think that the devil has an agenda to destroy the image of God in us? Yes, absolutely he does. While we're here in 1 Corinthians, let's go back over and let's see something else the Bible says. Chapter 6, chapter 6, verse 19 and 20, where the Bible says this. What? That's chapter 6, verse 19 and 20. Know you not that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit which is in you? which you have of God, and you are not your own, for you bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. So the Bible says that our body is the temple of God's Holy Spirit. This is where God wants to live, and this is where God wants to shine out from. Now, we can be pretty effective, I think, at times in destroying the temple of God. I mean, let's think about Solomon's temple for a moment. That was one of the temples of God. It was one of the wonders of the ancient world. It was full of gold on the inside. It was a beautiful building. How do you think it would have honored God if you'd gone up to that temple one day and started shoveling all kinds of junk into it? Would that give honor and glory to God? No, but sometimes we do that with our bodies, don't we? Yeah, sometimes we do. And it doesn't bring glory and honor to God either. And so the Bible says that our body is the temple of God. Let's put some things up here on the screen. The Bible says we're the temple of God, that we are not our own. We're bought with the price, with the precious blood of Jesus. So if we don't belong to us, we belong to somebody else. You know, I can't go and do with somebody else's property um, anything I feel like, can I? Because it does not belong to me. And so your body does not belong to you. Now, in the Bible, I could do a whole series of presentations, and Dr. Schaffenberg does many of these at times, on the principles of health as they are found in the Bible. I don't have time to cover them all. There are eight laws of health in the Bible, and here they are. I'll list them for you. And we will just look at a couple of high points this evening. The first one is nutrition. And this is typically the one where we let ourselves down the first or the easiest. You see, many of us are very, very busily digging our own graves with our teeth. And the Bible has more to say about this subject than any other. And then, of course, the second one that Dr. Scharfenberg mentioned, the second big one, these are the two big ones, is exercise. Now, there's nothing new about this, is there? The government tells us this all the time, don't they? 
Indeed they do. All right, but then we can work, work our way down through. The Bible speaks about the importance of fresh water and drinking fresh water, being washed with fresh water. The Bible speaks about sunlight. And we live in a country that I find is unique because we have an overabundance of both skin cancer and vitamin D deficiency. I could talk all night about that one as well. But we need good sunlight. We don't need to be burning ourselves, but we need to have good sunlight and a good amount of sunlight for our health. And the Bible supports that wholeheartedly. Temperance. Now, temperance is an old word. It simply means this, abstaining from that which is not good and moderation in that which is good. So if you have something that's good and you only eat just that one good thing, then that's not a good idea. And abstaining, of course, from that which is not good. The next one the Bible speaks about is air, as in fresh air. And the wonderful thing about living here on the Tweed Coast is that every time the the air comes in from the ocean, you get a good dose of fresh air. I live in Western Sydney where fresh air is a rare commodity. Rest. Is rest an important thing for our health? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And and in our day and in our lifestyle, do we need to have rest? Does our lifestyle wind us up? Oh, it certainly does. And then we come down to the last one out of the eight laws of health, the most important out of them all, of course, is trust in divine power. Now, of course, if you read down the column here, you notice I've lined them up so that it actually says new start because we can have a new start by following what the Bible says in relationship to health and lifestyle. So let's start with the big one at the top of the list, shall we? And let's see what does the Bible say about nutrition. To understand this one, we're going to go all the way back to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1 tells the story of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. They were perfect. They were fresh from the Creator's hand. And God, having just created them, gives them some instruction about what to eat in relationship to nutrition. And in verse 29, Genesis chapter 1 and verse 29, the Bible says, And God said, Behold, I have given you every herb bearing seed, which is upon the face of all the earth, and every tree in the which is the fruit of the tree yielding seed to you, sorry, it shall be for food. So the very first diet, the very first nutrition that God established for human beings was fruits, grains, and nuts. Now, of course, our world changed after sin. And it came under the curse of sin. And we can see the evidence for that all around us today. Isn't that so? And so as the world changed, God added some things to the human diet. And if we go over to chapter 3, in verse 18, Jesus is talking about the curse. God is talking about the curse that came to earth. And in verse 18, God says, Thorns also and thistles shall it, the earth, bring forth to you, and you shall eat the herb of the field. And so after sin entered the world, God added in vegetables. And so here you have the original diet that God gave to us, fruits, grains, nuts, and vegetables. That's a plant-based diet, isn't that so? We all know a plant-based diet is the best, don't we? Yeah. Let me tell you something. I've been a vegetarian since 1992, since the 12th of September 1992. And I have never regretted it. 
sat down, ate my last piece of chicken, and that was it. Never gone back since then. And I can highly recommend it. And let me, tell, let me share something else with you. When you get to heaven, you will all be like me. Did you know that? Because in heaven, how much death is there in heaven? There is no death in heaven, so you will all be vegetarians. Have you ever noticed your teeth are the teeth of a herbivore, not a carnivore? That your digestive tract is the digestive tract of a herbivore, not a carnivore? And that when you introduce flesh into the human body, it takes about three months for the human body to actually be able to produce the um, enzymes to digest it properly. We were originally created to live on a plant-based diet. However, our world changed again sometime after the entrance of sin and God changed the diet once again because you're all sitting there asking the question, well, how come people eat flesh today? How come people eat meat? Well, some changes came in and when God flooded the world, he wiped out all vegetation. Let's turn our Bibles over to Genesis chapter 7 and let's read about it over here. In Genesis chapter 7, Beginning in verse 1, the Bible said, And the Lord said to Noah, Come you and all your house into the ark. This is the ark that's the boat. For you have I seen righteous before me in this generation. And then he goes on and he says something very specific. Of every clean beast, you shall take to you by sevens the male and his female. And of the beasts that are not clean, or the animals that are not clean, by two the male and his female. How do we know that Noah did this? Well, the answer is very simple because if he didn't do it and he decided to eat the unclean animals, they would have all become extinct the moment that he ate one of them because he only had one of each. But God says, okay, I'm going to wipe out all vegetation. You're going to need some extra things in your diet. I'm going to add them in and I'm going to divide them up for you so that there are some that are appropriate for food and some that are not appropriate for food. Now, of course, this is not the ideal, but God provides it because God provides for our needs. Now, the question I know that you're all asking me at this particular point is that when God added flesh into the human diet and he divided between that which was healthy to eat and that which is not healthy to eat, how do we know which is which? Well, the good news is that Moses, when he was writing the first five books of the Bible, gave us the answer, and we find it listed for us in Leviticus chapter 11. And by the way, if you want to understand the science behind this, it is fascinating. I don't have the time this evening to share with you all the science, but you can come and talk to Dr. Schaffenberg, and he will tell you all the science as to why this actually works. Leviticus chapter 11. Here it's all spelled out. Of course, the Israelites had been in captivity for 400 years. They had forgotten all of this information and God had to come back and remind them about it. And you'll find this on page 45. And here it says this, Speak unto the children of Israel, saying, These are the animals which you shall eat among all the animals that are on the earth. Whatsoever parts the hoof, in other words, has a split hoof, is cloven-footed, and choose the cud among the beasts, that shall you eat. So God outlines something here that is very, very simple and straightforward. You do not need a science degree to understand it. All you need is a pair of eyes. In fact, you could do it with one. Does it have a split hoof? Yes, it has a split hoof. Yeah. Is it chewing the cud? You know when they sit in the paddock and, and they have multiple stomachs and they regurgitate and eat the same food multiple times? 
Yep, chewing the cud, okay. Is good to eat. Is it not doing those things? It is not good to eat. Now, of course, in Western society, uh, it doesn't affect us largely except for um, one particular creature. If we go on down here, verse 4, Nevertheless, these shall you not eat of those that chew the cud or of those that divide the hoof. As the camel, because he chews the cud but divides not the hoof, he is unclean unto you. Now, I know that you're all going to be very disappointed this evening that the Bible says you can't eat dead camels, right? Okay, let me see if I can find one that's a little bit more. Okay, verse 7, this one is probably relevant. To some extent, the Bible says, and the swine, that's the pig. Though he divide the hoof and is cloven-footed, yet he chews not the cud, he is unclean to you. Now, let me ask you a question right here. Which would you rather eat, that or that? Why does God say don't eat dead pigs? Well, the answer is really quite simple. Um, amongst many other reasons, they are full of trachina worms one of the major causes of arthritis in our world today. In fact, I was, um, and there's some trachina larva in, in, in uh, pork flesh right there. I was talking to, um, I was doing this Bible study with a friend of mine one time, and, uh, and we're doing the study. I'm talking about it. He's like, oh, yeah. He said, he said one time he said, I had a piece of um, pork that was in the pan, and it was on the stove, but I didn't realize the stove was switched on. It was just on a really low heat, and he came back like 20 minutes later, and the worms were coming out. Now, if you cook it well enough, you will kill those trachina worms. So then you get to eat dead worms. Yum. Uh, the good thing is right here that um, God talks about everything, you know. You ask me, what about fish? And I know that some of you enjoy a bit of fishing and catching some fish. In Leviticus chapter 11, it goes on in verse 9, it says, These shall you eat of all that are in the waters, whatever has fins and scales in the waters and the seas and in the rivers, those shall you eat. So it has fins and scales, it's safe. You read a lot of survival manuals today and they will tell you if you are living by the coast, eat anything that has fins and scales, do not touch anything else. It goes on. All that does not have fins and scales in the seas and the rivers and all that moves in the waters and everything that lives in the waters, they shall be an abomination unto you. Now, this one cuts a little bit closer to home. You see, one of the things that as human beings we really like to eat are the things that filter all of the garbage out of the ocean. Do you know what, what, the, what the purpose for the existence of shellfish is. Do you know their reason for existence on the earth? They are filters to filter all the toxins out of the sea. That's one of the reasons why they are actually one of the most dangerous creatures to eat. We eat the filter. Does that make a whole lot of sense? Yeah. Octopuses kind of operate much the same way, don't they? You see, it's my job this evening to gross you all out. <laughs> okay, so the Bible says don't touch these things, and I think that there's something quite um, interesting. You know, I, I kind of look at it like this. Have you, ever, have you ever looked at the face of one of these? Uh, you know, if you looked in, pick one up one day and look at its face. Have you ever noticed how ugly it is? 
I mean, these are a seriously ugly creature. Why did God make them ugly? God made them ugly to give you a, a message. I'm not food. Don't eat me. One thing I've noticed and I find it most strange is that uh, um, the wealthier people get, the grosser the things they eat. And the more it costs them. Isn't that pretty much how it works? You know, poor people, they eat rice. That's it. And then the wealthier they get, you know, ooh, nasty things that people put in their mouths. You see, we typically choose our food, number one, by what it looks like, number two, by how it tastes, and number three, never by what it actually is. And so God gives you a a, a code right here that you can use. You follow this right here, you'll add seven to 15 years to your lifespan. And by the way, this is what the Bible permits right here. Obviously, the Bible infers that the ultimate is a plant-based diet. Okay, it goes on. Verse 13. Um, You might be disappointed in this because this talks about birds and it tells you you can't eat crows. Sorry about that. Verse 13, those are those which you shall have an abomination among all the birds that shall not be eaten. And then it goes down and lists them eagles and ospreys and vultures. The Bible says you can't eat dead vultures. And basically what it does is it goes down and lists all of the scavengers. It says don't touch the scavenging birds. The other ones... They are fine. And what I find most interesting is if you actually go over the page, um, further down in the passage, it talks about the bugs you can eat. Anybody ever hear eaten bugs? Some of you probably have. Now, I find that interesting because in Western culture, we don't typically eat insects, do we? However, this book was written for all cultures in all the world. Isn't that so? And in some cultures, they do eat insects and they are a delicacy. And so the Bible tells us um, right here, let's see, let's go down to verse 21. Yet these you may eat of every flying, creeping things, creepy, crawly bugs, that go upon all four, which have legs above their feet. Now this is important. To leap, the Bible says, upon the earth. Does a snail have legs above its feet? No, it is a foot with eyes, and it does not leap. Does any French people here this evening? I hate to disappoint you all, but the Bible says it needs to have legs above its feet, and it talks about, of course, um, locusts and grasshoppers, etc. Never try a grasshopper. Don't plan on trying a grasshopper, but if you want to, go right ahead. That's uh, entirely up to you. Now, of course, the question that often get asked in relationship to this particular subject right here is this. Isn't this just a Jewish thing? Because we're fairly familiar with Jewish people that follow these kind of health principles. Isn't that so? And that's a very valid question. So let me ask you this question. Does God only want Jewish people to be healthy? No, God wants everybody to be healthy. Um, What nationality was Noah? Was Noah Jewish? No, Noah was antediluvian. That means he lived before the flood. That was his nationality. He lived hundreds and hundreds of years before Abraham came on the scene. Okay, so God did not give it to Jews. He did give it to Noah. And the Bible says that God actually takes this very, very seriously and he will never remove these principles from the human race. So let's turn to Isaiah. 
middle of the Bible, page 305, Isaiah chapter 66. Someone asked me one time, well, you know, modern day sanitation, all that kind of stuff. We're ridding the world. You know, pigs, they don't have as much trachina as they used to have before. Well, that's debatable. Um, And even if it is, that means you get to eat less trachina. Yum. Isaiah chapter 66, I'm quite fond of not eating any of that stuff. Verse 15, Isaiah 66 and verse 15. And here the Bible speaks about the return of Jesus. And it says this, it says, For behold, the Lord will come with fire and with his chariots like a whirlwind to render his anger with fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. We've read many passages about the second coming. We know what we're dealing with here. Verse 16, For by fire and his sword will the Lord judge all flesh and the slain of the Lord shall be many. And then it goes on and talks about some people that are destroyed when Jesus comes back. In verse 17 it says, Those that sanctify themselves and purify themselves in the gardens in the middle behind one tree, eating swine's flesh, and the abomination and the mouse shall be consumed together, says the Lord. So here the Bible lists three things. And you might wonder, why does it list these three things right here? It starts off by listing swine's flesh because that's probably the the, the most major one globally that people are going to struggle with, with this whole concept right here. Then it lists, the second thing is the abomination. If you want to find out what the abomination is, go back to Leviticus chapter 11 and All of the things the Bible says don't eat in Leviticus chapter 11, it calls the abomination. And then it speaks about the mouse. Now, I don't know about you, but I've never eaten a mouse. That's like really gross, right? Well, dead mice. Um, A friend of mine was traveling through a certain country that will this evening remain unnamed. And he went into a restaurant that had a specialty. Live white mice. And here's how it worked. This is honestly how it worked. They would bring a big jar like this big of honey out. They would put it in the middle of the table and then they'd bring out a box. And running around in this box were all these mice. Anyway, so you pick the mouse up by the tail while he's still alive, dip him all in the honey and... Is, is, is Satan trying to destroy the image of God and deprave human beings? Yeah, he is. He certainly is. Oh, I can see some of you looking at me like, oh, don't tell any more stories, please. <laughs> you know what God is saying here? He's saying eating a dead pig is like eating a dead mouse. He's likening the two together because no one in their right mind would seriously go and catch a, mice, a mouse and eat that. But God says, yes, this is an issue at the end of time and people that are doing this. God's taken it very seriously here. Very, very seriously. Yeah. So let's look at it over in the New Testament. To look at it in the New Testament, we're going to look at another principle from Leviticus chapter 3. Leviticus chapter 3, that's page 41. Leviticus chapter 3, page 41. And verse 17 where it says this, it shall be a perpetual statute for your generations throughout all your dwellings or living places. So how long is this to last for? Forever. It's perpetual. That you eat neither fat nor blood. Why on earth would God say not to eat fat? What a strange thing to say, right? 
Don't you think? No, we all know that, right? Don't eat fat. Why don't you eat fat? If you, because if you eat fat, then you have, your arteries are going to clog up. It's going to fill up all on the inside of you until you end up having a heart attack. Isn't that how it works? And when you go to the doctor and you're ill and the doctor wants to do a diagnosis, what does he take out of your arm? Blood. Why is he taking a blood test? Because that is where the disease is and that's where he can find it. And so if we eat an animal and it has all the blood left, you know, we strangle it, and, uh, and, and leave all the blood left in that animal. What are, we, what are we preserving inside the animal? Any diseases that animal might have. And so God is giving really practical advice right here. Don't eat fat because your arteries will clog up and you'll have a heart attack. Don't eat blood because that's where the disease is. And you'll fill your body up with all kinds of toxins that will then be stored in the fat that you have built up from eating the fat. So practical what the Bible says. You know, people come up with this stuff in recent times and they talk about modern, modern health science and you can go to the, your local bookshop and you can, get, you can get mountains of books on modern health science and all lifestyle, all this kind of stuff. Well, if you come here to our meeting, we will give you a lifestyle book for free. It's called The Bible. It's been around for three and a half thousand years. And out of the four of the, uh, of the longest lived People groups in the world, those who follow this right here, are one of them. Okay, let's look at this over in the New Testament then. If we go to the book of Acts, we find a fascinating story over in the book of Acts. While we're over here, let's do a little bit of background. Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15 is the Jerusalem Council. The Jerusalem Council was the first church council ever held. It was held for the purpose of deciding what is it that applies to just Jewish people, that is Jewish culture, and what is it that is for everybody. So it's important for them to have a council early on and find out, okay, what's for everybody, Gentiles and all, and what's just, you know, specific for our culture right here. And so under the guidance of God and the Holy Spirit, they got together and... Um, discussed it in verse 18, it's page 447, Uh, verse 19, sorry, they make a conclusion. James, the leader of the church at that particular time, says, Wherefore my sentence is that we trouble not those which from among the Gentiles are turned to God, but we write unto them that they abstain from pollutions of idols. Do the Ten Commandments say, Thou shalt have no other gods? Yes, so they reference the Ten Commandments. Okay, the Ten Commandments stay. Then they go on, and from fornication, well, that's in the Ten Commandments as well. And from things strangled and from blood. Well, where do you find those laws? You don't find that in the Ten Commandments. You find that in the health laws. And so at the Jerusalem Council, it was made very, very plain that not just the Ten Commandments pass over to Christianity, but the laws of health do as well because God wants everybody to be healthy, doesn't he? Yeah, some people come to me and they're like, oh, this is all just ceremonial and it's just Jewish. It's a funny thing that when people don't like something, anything anything that anybody doesn't like, they always be labeled, that's Jewish. You know, well, what's wrong with Jewish people, you know? (laughs) Jewish people can live pretty good lives. Most unusual indeed. Anyway, let's continue on. Let's look at 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4, and this is an interesting one, particularly in light of some of the things that have been happening here in Australia recently. 
Uh, it references a, another subject that came up during question time that we'll try not to get ourselves too sidetracked on. Page 479, 1 Timothy chapter 4, page 479. And some people actually use this passage to read the opposite of what it actually says. But anyway, in 1 Timothy chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, the Bible says, Now the Spirit speaks expressly, that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron. All right, then in verse 3, you have two doctrines of devils. The first one, the Bible says, forbidding to do what? Marry. That's the doctrine of celibacy that was spoken about in our question time. Um, The doctrine of celibacy, of course, if we look out at the Royal Commission that has recently started, we see the terrible results of forcing something entirely unnatural onto a human being and where it ends up. Not that there is any excuse ever for the horrific things that take place uh, within the clergy um, at various times. But then it goes on and it says, and commanding to abstain from meats. The word for meats there is the word for foods. Well, what kind of foods? Which God has created to be received with thanksgiving of those which believe and know the truth. So here we find two things, two identifying marks of the Antichrist, one right here. Number one, the doctrine of celibacy. Number two, commanding to abstain from certain foods which God has said you can eat. And of course, many of you remember when it used to be you know, just fish on Fridays, right? Couldn't eat any red meat on Fridays. We're all familiar with that kind of a concept. They were commanding you to abstain from meats which God has said were available to be used. Then we come to the verse that people stumble over because they don't read it in context of verse 3 and verse 5. It says, For every creature of God is good and nothing to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving. And so some people read this verse and they say, whoa, 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 wait a minute. The Bible says every creature is good, right? Nothing to be refused, just be thankful for it. Now, we actually know that's not the case, don't we? Because there are some creatures that if you eat them, you will die because they are toxic in and of themselves. Isn't that so? You don't want to go down here to the river, catch yourself a puffer fish and just eat it because you will die if you do that. Here's the principle of understanding the Bible. When the Bible says too much, it actually doesn't say anything at all. And so you've then got to look for the context to define what is it actually saying. So let's look at the context of this particular passage right here. It begins in verse 3, speaking about those foods which God has created to be received. Now, if God has created some foods to be received, reverse that equation, there are some foods that he has created not to be received. Isn't that so? So every food that God has created to be received is good, nothing to be refused. None of those fish on Fridays kind of thing. Um, So long as it's received with thanksgiving. Well, how do you then find out and define what God has created to be received and what he has not created to be received? The answer comes in verse 5 where it says this, For it is sanctified by the word of God and by prayer. The word sanctified means set apart for a holy use. 
So then you ask yourself the next question, does God set some foods apart for a holy use? Well, if you read the Bible, you find absolutely he does, and you'll find it in many places down through the Bible. God, the Word of God, sets certain foods apart for a holy use. And then, of course, the Bible says that we should pray over our food, shouldn't we? Always a good thing to be thankful for our food. Isn't that so? All right. I should have um, moved on. That was a kind of a gross picture. Put a nicer picture up there. How about that? Somebody exercising. Now, I want to raise another important subject, and that is this. What about addictive, mind-altering drugs? Is that the kind of lifestyle that Jesus would have us live? No, we all know that, right? That all makes sense, doesn't it? Yeah. Well, let's consider this for a moment because you would be amazed. You would be seriously amazed how many. In fact, in fact, I'm going to show you something. Revelation chapter 18. Revelation chapter 18. And verse 23 speaks about Babylon at the end of time. Babylon at the end of time is symbolic of the organization, globalism, put together against God. It talks about the fall of Babylon. It talks about how Babylon became great. They thought they were wonderful, and then that was it. They were over. And then the angel says, And the light of a candle shall shine no more at all, all in you. And the voice of the bridegroom and of the bride shall, shine, shall be heard no more at all in you. For your merchants were the great men of the earth, for by your sorceries were all nations deceived. Now, we talked about this in question time some time ago. Does anybody remember what the word sorceries is translated from in the Greek? Pharmakia, drugs. You did well can't believe somebody remembered that. It's speaking about drugs right here. And so here's what the Bible says. At the end of time, one of the major tools of the devil will be to deceive the world through the use of drugs and one of his greatest allies in deceiving the world and getting people addicted to drugs has been Christians. And you're looking at me shocked. Well, let's think about some mind-altering, addictive drugs for a moment. Alcohol. Is alcohol a mind-altering drug? Is it addictive? Yeah, absolutely it's addictive. What does the Bible have to say about alcohol? Because I have, I have Christians come to me many times and say, oh, we, we, you know, there's nothing wrong with drinking alcohol. Well, let's consider a couple of things. First of all, the Bible says in the plainest possible language that no alcoholic, no drunkard is going into heaven. That's simple. So then we have to ask ourselves the question, if no alcoholic is going into heaven, then alcohol is a dangerous thing to be tampering with, wouldn't you say? Let me reason with you for a moment and then, let, then let's consider what the Bible says. Let's say that this was a glass of alcohol. It's not, it's pure water. You can come and try it later, I guarantee. It's water. Let's say that Jesus went to a birthday party and there were a number of young people there um, who were turning 18. And it was their first opportunity to legally drink alcohol. And he held up a glass of alcohol like this. He showed it to them. 
And he gave them the statistics. One out of six people who drink this glass right here will become addicted today and become an alcoholic and lose out on salvation. Try some. Would Jesus do that? Is that the kind of character that God has? Does he like to see people destroyed by alcohol? Does does alcohol destroy people's lives? I think we all know people whose lives have been destroyed by alcohol. Jesus would never do that. That's the exact... He gave his life for these people. Why Why would he purposely give them something that was going to cause one out of six of them guaranteed lost? Well, if you put it in the context of 18-year-olds, it's not one in six. 60%, 7% of alcohol consumed in Australia is an incidence of binge drinking. Under the age of 24, 90% is binge drinking. So if he was among a group of 18-year-olds and there were 10 of them, nine out of them would be lost because of what they drank. So we come to the subject of wine in the Bible. And the Bible speaks in many places about wine. And it says some very positive things about wine. And so that raises a question in our minds. Do we have a conflict right here? The word wine in the English language that we have in our English Bible comes from three different forms of beverages that the people in the time of Christ and the ancient Jewish people, etc., used to drink. Those three different beverages are all referred to by the one word, wine. Of course, one of them is grape juice. Now you ask, well, how do you find, if it's all the same word, how do you find which one the Bible is talking about? Well, it's easy. You define it by context. And we'll look at some context in just a moment and see how this works. You have grape juice. You had Dibbus. Dibbus was a, uh, where, where they would take fresh grape juice. They'd boil it down to a jelly. They'd put it in a wine skin. They could preserve it for over a year without it turning to alcohol. And then you'd scoop it out. You'd mix it with water and you had a cheap version of grape juice. And then, of course, the Bible speaks about alcohol. So let's look at some context and let's see how this works. If we begin in Isaiah chapter 65. Isaiah chapter 65. Let's look at the context and you can tell me which one of these three it is speaking about. Isaiah chapter 65 and that's page 304, uh, verse 8. It says this, Thus says the Lord, as the new wine is found in the cluster, and one says, destroy it not, for a blessing is in it, so will I do for my servants' sakes that I will not destroy them. The Bible speaks about the new wine found in the what? In the cluster of grapes context. What kind of beverage is that? That's grape juice, all right? Turn over to the book of Proverbs. Proverbs. And we will go to chapter 20, that's page 265, and verse 1. Let's get some context here and see which beverage this one is. Page 265, wine is a mocker, strong drink is raging, and whosoever is deceived thereby is not wise. Which beverage is that? That's alcohol. You see, it's not hard to figure out the context to figure out which one is being spoken about, is it? Turn over the page to chapter 23. And here the Bible says, uh, verse 31. 
Don't look at the wine when it is red, when it gives its colour in the cup, when it moves itself, it bubbles itself aright. At the last, it bites like a serpent and stings like an adder. Which beverage is that? Yeah, that's alcohol. And for those of you who have ever tasted alcohol, you know that wine is a mocker, alcohol is a mocker, strong drink is raiding, and the Bible says don't even look at it. Don't go anywhere near it. And so then people ask me the next question. We'll, we'll look some, for some context for the use of uh, didbus as well. Let's go over to the Gospel of John, John chapter 2. And let's read about the wedding feast. Does that sound like a familiar story to some of you? The very first miracle that Jesus ever did, he began his miracle at a wedding feast. And at that wedding feast, he created an enormous amount of wine. In fact, he created the equivalent of six kegs worth of wine. That's quite a bit, isn't it? So what was Jesus doing here? And some people have come to him and they said, you know, Jesus created wine, therefore, that's it. Drink as much alcohol as you want. Let's, let's read down through here and get a little bit of context. The marriage feast and a Jewish wedding in those days and, and still somewhat in this day lasted for three days. John chapter 2 and verse 3, the Bible says, And when they wanted wine, they ran out, you see, on the third day. The mother of Jesus said unto him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what have I to do with you? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. And there were six water pots of stone about the manner, uh, after the manner of the purifying of the Jews, containing two or three firkins apiece. That's about six kegs worth. Jesus said to them, Fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said unto them, draw out now and bear to the governor of the feast. And they bear it. When the ruler of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants which drew the water knew, the governor of the feast called the bridegroom and said unto him, every man at the beginning does set forth good wine. And when men have well drunk, then that which is worse, but you have kept the good wine until now. So let's get a little bit of context here. This is the third day of the feast. The Bible says there was good wine at the beginning. And then after the good wine had been used up, they used the less good wine. And then Jesus came along and he created more wine. And it was the good stuff. So we have to ask ourselves the question. We know that the less good wine, that obviously that's Didbus. You know, reconstituted, never as good. So was this alcohol that they were using? Now, the Bible says that they had well drunk for how long? Three days. Now, some of you have probably been on a three-day drinking binge. And what did you look like after drinking for three days straight? Now, seriously, friends, I want you to seriously think about this for a moment. After three days on the grog, you would look about like that, wouldn't you? Here you have Jesus, the ruler of the universe. Is he going to be involved in something like this? Drinking for three days in well drunk, the Bible says. They had drunk quite a bit. That's why they ran out for three days. And he's like, oh, no, we've run out of wine. We'll make another six kegs worth. Finishes off. 
No, it's entirely opposite the character of Jesus. We know that. It becomes plain when you look at the context right here that Jesus created pure, fresh grape juice. Fermentation in the Bible is a symbol of sin. That's why it wasn't used in the communion service. The communion service was to be without any symbols of sin. That's why they used flat bread because it had no rising agent in it. You don't hand somebody a glass of alcohol and say, do this to remember me, do you? He says, start in on the alcohol, you're not going to remember a thing. And so the Bible speaks very, very clearly about the use of alcohol. And it's something that I guess I'm a little bit passionate about because I see so often that our world is being destroyed as a result of people who think, well, the Bible supports this. No, the Bible does not support this. Read it in its context. Go to Deuteronomy. While we're on the subject of drugs, we'll read from Deuteronomy right here. You see, we fear the effects of illicit recreational drugs, and we know the toll that that has borne on society. And I I don't have to ask anyone. Everybody knows automatically that that... Is wrong. We go to Deuteronomy chapter 19. The Bible speaks about it over here. No, Deuteronomy 29. Sorry, Deuteronomy 29. Speaks about drugs. Verse 18, it likens it to idolatry. It says, Lest there should be among you a man or woman or family or tribe whose heart turns away this day from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of those nations. Lest there should be among you a root that bears gall and wormwood, opium and a poisonous herb. And so the Bible speaks very clearly about those kind of drugs right here. It likens it to idolatry. It says don't have anything to do with it. The whole world will be deceived by drugs at the end of time. Now, thankfully, we live in a society where they're doing a lot of things to get rid of uh, drugs out of our society, including nicotine these days. It's been good to see many of the things that have been taking place here in Australia. We must have one of the lowest smoking rates um, Probably in the Western world, I don't know, but it's certainly been very, very positive to see that's happening. However, the Bible says that one of the major tactics of the devil at the end of time will be to use drugs. Is there a drug that everybody uses? What about caffeine? Is caffeine a mind-altering drug? Absolutely. Caffeine is an incredibly powerful drug. And I don't have time to go into detail in caffeine this evening. If you want to have more detail about it, come and see me. I'll put something in the question box. And I will give you some very disturbing information about caffeine. It was interesting. Um, I, I love my four-wheel driving. I really That's one of my favorite things to do for recreation. And so I was reading a four-wheel drive magazine. It was probably a year or so ago now. And they were having an article uh, for people who do you know, long-distance four-wheel driving, outback Australia, all that kind of thing, and the danger in Australia of going to sleep at the wheel. And do you want to know what one of the primary causes of people going to sleep at the wheel here in Australia is? Caffeine. You know why? Because it masks your fatigue. And so what happens is your fatigue goes down like this, right? The caffeine pushes you up here to an unnatural high and then it all cuts off in a 20-minute period. And when they do the research, 30% of fatalities are, are as a result of fatigue. Nearly always 
it comes at that particular point where the caffeine has worn off in that 20-minute period. That's where everybody just goes to sleep at the wheel and dies. It's really quite scary stuff. I could, I could go on and I'll, I'll, I'll not because I don't have time this evening to talk about it in depth. However, I do want to draw your attention to this passage right here where the Bible says this, Beloved, I wish above all things that you may prosper and be in health. The Bible, I've scratched the surface here this evening. The Bible talks about eight laws of health. The one that we have the most struggle with is what we put into our mouths. And the second one we have the most struggle with in Western society is exercise. But all of them are important and God wishes every single one of us to be in health. Why does God, why does God give us this information right here? Because he created us and he loves us. That's the only reason he gives us that information. We serve a God who cares about every aspect of our lives. Isn't that good news? You know, when I see a God who cares about every aspect of, our, of my life, I want to serve him and I want to say, look, Lord, if, if you care about all of these things, you died for me so you could spend eternity with me, you gave me all of this information so you could improve and lengthen my lifestyle here, I want to serve you in every aspect. I want to be fully surrendered to you. How many of you this evening want to say, yes, I want to be fully surrendered to Jesus Christ? Well, friends, praise God, we serve such a wonderful God. Let's bow our heads as we pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the many blessings that you give to us. We thank you for giving us such simple information that outlines for us a lifestyle that is not complicated, is not complex, is not some fancy diet, it's just a simple way of serving you. You've given us a recommendation for what is best. You've given us... Uh, allowances for where we um, are not able to do what is best. And Father, you have provided for us abundantly. We thank you so much for your love for us. We pray that you'll bless us with your presence. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to an M24 media production of The Prophetic Code by speaker-presenter Lyle Southwell. For more information, visit knowthecode.global or call 3ABN Australia Radio on 02-4973-3456.